Good morning. Be seated. In the case of Tamim al-Bashir against Her Majesty the Queen and Kasra Mosinipur against Her Majesty the Queen, for the appellant, Tamim al-Bashir, uh, Eric Persky, and Alex Tolody, for the appellant, Kasra Mosinipur, Joven Narwal, and Angela M. Bolt, for the respondent, Her Majesty the Queen, Lara Vidioli, for the intervener, Attorney General of Canada, um, and I, I forgot the name, Janet Dickey, for uh, the respondent, uh, Her Majesty the Queen, for the Attorney General of Canada, Anne M. Turley, for the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, Michael S. Dunn, for the intervenant, Procureur General du Québec, Maître Fiona Aymon. Please note that there is a publication ban pursuant to section 485.1 and 486.51 of the criminal code that exists in this matter at the lower courts in the file 39277 and in the file number 39278. There is also a publication ban pursuant to section 486.41 and 46.42.2 and 46.51 of the criminal code that exists in this matter at the lower courts. Mr. Persky. Thank you, Chief Justice. By way of brief overview, I would like to set out the position of the appellants on this appeal, why this position is the right one, and how my colleague, Mr. Narwhal, and I are going to divide up the issues this morning. The trial judge was right to quash the two counts that are the subject of this appeal. That is because when Parliament enacted remedial legislation within the period of suspension imposed in Bedford, the suspension was at an end and the, in, the declaration of invalidity took effect on a retroactive basis. This meant that the old unconstitutional law was of no force and effect. In the absence of any transitional provisions within the remedial legislation or a prospective suspended declaration imposed by this court in Bedford, the old law was invalid. This result in our submission gives full effect to two foundational principles. One, it gives effect to the importance of the declaratory or what is known as the Blackstonian approach to constitutional remedies, where a declaration of invalidity is presumed to have full retroactive effect on the theory that Parliament never had the authority to enact the unconstitutional law in the first place. And the second principle is that it respects legislative choice in, in terms of giving the legislature the opportunity to respond to the past and, enact, and the retroactive effect of the declaration of invalidity. So one, one, can ask the, one can ask the question, I'm sorry. One can ask the question, what would be the purpose of um, suspending the uh, invalidity if, as a matter of law, at the end of the day, it, uh, it's of no meaning? The purpose of, of, of enacting the, uh, of, an act of having the suspension is to provide the legislature here, Parliament, with the opportunity to decide how it's going to uh, prospectively enact the new law to cure the unconstitutionality, but also on a retroactive basis, how it's going to respond to the past 
past, uh, past the retroactive effect of the declaration of invalidity. Why do they need a suspension to do that? They could just do it in the face of an immediate declaration of invalidity, could they not? There's nothing stopping Parliament from deciding what to do. They certainly could do that, but the, the purpose, why, the reason why the suspension is enacted is to give Parliament that opportunity to respond in keeping the law in force uh, for, that, uh, for that time limited period, allowing Parliament to decide. And that's the reason why the suspension was imposed in the first place, because it's not an easy fix. It's up for Parliament to balance all the social and political considerations uh, in, 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 in imposing a law both on a retroactive and a prospective basis. Now, I'm going to address the legal effect in my submissions this morning. I'm going to address the legal effect of remedial legislation when it's enacted in a period, within a period of suspension. Mr. Narwhal is going to address this morning the second issue arising, uh, which is this court's decision in Bedford, the remedy imposed in Bedford, and in, in, in our submission, it did not impose a prospective suspended declaration. Sorry, so, just before you, you go on. A... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> can, can I just take you back to a comment that you made? I just wanted you to explain what, what that means. You said that the effect of a suspended declaration is to keep the law in effect. What does that mean? What's the effect of keeping the law in effect? The effect is for the period of suspension, so when a court imposes, say, a 12-month suspension, the law is in effect, meaning that uh, in a criminal context, uh, uh, people can be charged, tried, and convicted within that period of suspension. But when the, sp when the period of suspension ends, by either parliament, so there's two situations where the suspension would come to an end. That is when the, the time elapses on the suspension, so Parliament does not act, the declaration of invalidity in my submission comes into effect with full retroactive force. Well, Mr. Pertsky, on what basis are you saying that the person who would commit the offense during the suspension period has to be charged, the trial has to take place, the person has to be convicted entirely during that suspension period? Let's say that the offense is committed the, the second to last day of the suspension period, you would say that it's not possible to prosecute that person? It is, pro it is possible to prosecute that person if Parliament then enacts a remedial law dealing with the past. Dealing forget with, forget about the remedial law. Forget about the remedial law. If there is a suspension of the declaration of invalidity and you can see that it is to maintain uh, alive the unconstitutional law for a, a period of time, what does it mean? It means that if somebody contravenes the law, that person can be prosecuted, even if the trial is taking place after. Can I add to that? And what if there was a conviction and then an appeal after? A conviction during and then the appeal after? Well, at that point, um, if there was, a, if there was a, a conviction, at that point, the uh, individual would um, still be um, it really depends on, the, on, in my submission, on the effect of the remedial, on the, on the remedial legislation. We're kind of making this up as we're going along, and I'm not blaming you, Mr. Pertsky, but that's kind of how it is with these things. But um, I guess just to signal to you, I'm, 
and, and maybe this is just the world we're in with suspended declarations of invalidity, but I'm searching for a principle here. Um, am I on a fool's errand? No, and the, and the principle is, Justice Brown, the principle is the two, two, two principles, and that's one, the Blackstonian approach, the declaratory approach to constitutional remedies, and that is where a suspension of invalidity, where a declaration of invalidity comes into force, it has retroactive effect. And that's for a lot of important reasons. It's a, re it's a reason why this court has emphasized the importance of the declaratory approach. But principles, principles have to put it, be put into application. Tell me how those principles apply to answer Justice Kazira's question. And so in this case, for example, in, a, in the case of a suspension, where an individual is, the, the, the period of suspension has been imposed, and it's, the law is alive for 12 months, as in Bedford. An individual, because there is a suspension, the, the unconstitutional law is alive, but it gives Parliament that time to respond. And so when Parliament enacts remedial legislation, the retroactive effect the suspension is over and the retroactive uh, effect of the declaration of invalidity comes into effect. It is then up for Parliament or the legislature to fill that legislative void. So the, the triggering event is the enactment of remedial legislation and unless the court imposes a prospective remedy, it is presumed in my submission to have retroactive effect but and the remedial legislation has to in effect counteract that ret retroactive but effect. I can, can I ask you this? I think you, you base the retroactive effect of the um, declaration. You started off by talking about the Blackstonian theory. And I guess I'm, I take you back to G where the argument was made that the Blackstonian theory meant that the law was never valid. It never existed. It was void ab initio. And where the court said, well, in fact, there is a discretion in the court to fashion a remedy that respects broader constitutional principles and other constitutional principles. And there is a discretion to suspend or to fashion a remedy because of a compelling public interest. Why do you say, it, and you would accept, I, I take it, that the court could say that there's a transition period and that this declaration will only become effective prospectively. What, why do you say that it automatically, there's, uh, it has to be retroactive as opposed to looking at the circumstances and the context to determine what the intention of the court was in exercising its discretion to suspend the declaration. Yeah, that, that I agree that it, as this court said in G, of course, that it is discretion. There, there's two layers of discretion when imposing a uh, when imposing a, uh, a suspended uh, declaration of invalidity. The first layer is to suspend it all. That's the first. Shall we suspend this declaration at all? And that has its own considerations. And I say at that point it. The, the suspension of invalidity is, is operating as, a, as an exception to the Blackstonian principle to the extent that it is uh, putting a break on the immediacy of the declaration of invalidity. Now, a second and further layer of discretion is what is it going to be? Is it going to be retroactive or prospective? 
That's, a, that's an added another layer of discretion. So Mr. Norwell is going to address why in, in Bedford it was a retro, it was retroactive. It was not prospective as argued by the Attorney General of Canada in this appeal. But going back to the first question is of, of suspension, that is discretionary. It does operate contrary to, the, to contrary to the Blackstonian principle, but you have to keep in mind, in my respectful submission, the importance of the Blackstonian approach. Parliament never had the authority to enact the unconstitutional law but in the first place. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It's, is it a helpful way of looking at it? Shouldn't we be looking at, well, what is the effect of the declaration? Uh, as uh, Justice Kassir pointed out, res judicata, people who are in jail and convicted of an, uh, of an offense that's subsequently found to be unconstitutional, they're not uh, 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 allowed to take advantage of that unless they're still in the system, unless there's a judicial determination still to be made. Why, why do, is it a helpful idea to say there's this Blackstonian concept that means this has to be retroactive? It, the importance of the Blackstonian principle is that it, it is presumed to be retroactive unless the court, um, uh, and Mr. Narwhal is going to get into the, the, the why, why in this case it was not uh, uh, prospective. It was, a, it was a retroactive remedy, but it goes to the importance of the, of the declaratory approach to constitutional remedies. It speaks to, one, the importance of legislative, legisl uh, the division of powers between the courts and the legislature. So it gives effect to those important principles that this court articulated in G. And it also uh, respects the division of powers, not in terms of legislative choice, but the idea that judges don't create the law. They discover that it's the, um, they discover that the law is unconstitutional. And so it's that theory, which I say is central. And so when, if the court is going to operate outside of the Blackstonian principle, and now it's, an, it's one thing to suspend the declaration. Now, in this case, that ship has sailed. Bedford has imposed a suspension of invalidity. That's the, that was this court's decision. That's one exception, and that's, and, that's, and that's an exceptional thing enough. But to make it, in my respectful submission, re, uh, prospective, saying we're not, we're not, the parliament doesn't need to legislate retroactively. Because if, if, if the court imposes a prospective remedy, in effect, lets the legislature off the hook in terms of enacting transitional provisions dealing with the past. Now, in terms of the, and I say that the, it highlights the importance of the Blackstonian approach and the importance, important role that legislative choice plays in enacting remedial law on a retroactive basis and on a go-forward basis. And, and uh, we've cited the case of Swain in our supplemental argument, which is that in that case, the court, this court imposed a six-month suspension of invalidity on the uh, well, what this court found was an unconstitutional detention scheme for NCRMD accused. The court's declaration was a suspended declaration. In my respectful submission, it was consistent with the Blackstonian approach, a retroactive remedy. A retro it had, once parliament enacted remedial legislation, it had retroactive effect. And so that's why when parliament responded to the, within the period of suspension, it enacted a new law going forward, a constitutionalized detention regime, but in, in the past said, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to authorize those old unconstitutional detentions, but we're going to eventually bring these old guys into the fold. And so in my submission, that demonstrates why the 
the, the default position is retroactivity. And that's why Parliament had to, in response to Swain, enact transitional provisions dealing with the past. And it was a consider, in my respectful submission, a considered determination to say, well, otherwise, be, otherwise, as this court because of the de declaration of invalidity, these individuals be go would go free, which was the reason what this court imposed a suspension of invalidity. So that demonstrates, in my respect, the, my my submission, the 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 effect of a declaration of invalidity and why Parliament has to legislate in the past and why that is a matter of legislative choice. And Can we see it about... even in this. No, doesn't. I don't. Oh, Mr. Persky, so. It means that if we follow your position, the practical effect of it would be that until the declaration in Bedford, your client could be prosecuted for, for their conduct. During the, the 12 months, the suspension of 12 months, they cannot be prosecuted. And with the, under the new legislation, their conduct can give, uh, can give rise to, to charges. So it means that the way they behave uh, could be prosecuted before Bedford under the new legislation, but the suspension period of 12 months, then they would be impugned, immune of any prosecution. No, no. What would be happening was that it, they would, the, the process would continue as if the law was enforced until remedial legislation, because that's the triggering event when the, when the suspension ends and the declaration kicks in with full retroactive effect. It is then up to Parliament to say, here are some transitional provisions. And in my submission, what, what Parliament would be doing was be to say, well, we've got to make sure, mindful of our constitutional obligations in Section 11G, that we're not criminalizing new or different forms of conduct, but we're going to track exactly what was said in Bedford, which is criminal conduct. And it's up for the tr uh, Parliament in enacting transitional provisions to say, okay, this is the law on a go-forward basis. But for people previously charged, convicted, these offenses will be offenses. It's exploitative conduct. That was the seed uh, of, the of the constitutional offense before. It's not the unconstitutional aspects. So if you the Parliament does nothing, let's say that the Parliament does nothing, but we, you agree that during the suspension period, the law is still alive. You agree with that. But let's say that the Parliament does nothing. Does it mean that uh, the person who, de who, contravenes, who contravenes the law during the suspension period cannot be prosecuted? Yes, the process ends at that point, and that's what the trial judge found here. The, 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 the charges of no force and effect, and there's no, on, there's no other law. And so what would happen is that law is then of no force and effect. And, and if Parliament were to enact, did not in this case, new legislation catching conduct before, um, the Crown would admit, uh, charge that individual, amend the indictment, any number of things. And as unpalatable as that scenario that Justice Cote um, painted for you seems, I assume that the answer to that would be, well, that's Parliament's choice. Parliament could exactly. have acted, Parliament didn't act, Parliament could have legislated retroactively, it didn't, Parliament could have done other things, it didn't. That's Parliament's call. Yes, that's correct, and that's, that's effectively what happened in this case. So there's an, it's an, it's an, it's an in my respectful submission, it's a, there's a solution to this problem, that is Parliament enacting remedial uh, retroactive legislation. Right, Although, now, now uh, you said something a moment ago, which I don't want to lose, 
And it may sound like a trivial point, but to me it's not. Maybe I'm alone. You, if I understood you correctly, said that when the remedial legislation is enacted, that brings about the end of the, of the suspension of the Declaration of Invalidity. Did I understand you correctly? It brings an end to the suspension and the declaration comes into effect with full retroactive force. Okay. How is that possible? And I'm, and I'm going to open up that question for you. It seems to me that Parliament can enact legislation, it can repeal legislation, it can amend legislation. How can Parliament, by its actions, vary an order of the court saying that a declaration is suspended for a given period? So I'll answer your question, Justice Rowe, in two ways. I'll first say that the purpose, so that the two ends of the suspension are the elapse, elapsing of the, the period of time, the, for example, the 12 months, and Parliament does not act during that time, it comes into a force. But the second point is on remedial legislation, with remedial legislation, the suspension comes to an end because there's no purpose of the suspension anymore. The now, but, purpose but of the you're, suspension you're, you're, you're saying to me that by operation of law, the enactment of new legislation causes the order of the court to be modified and terminated pre-earlier than the court has ordered. That, to me, is magic. I don't understand that. So, in my submission, the, 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 the effect of Parliament enacting is not changing the declaration. The declaration of invalidity is in effect, and that's um, in my submission, that the, what the Court of Appeal... The, you're not, you're not listening to me. I'll try one last time. Right. Right. It's not the declaration of invalidity. It's the suspension. If the court says this, direct, this declaration of invalidity is suspended for one year, then it's a year. Unless it says it's suspended for a year or if Parliament puts in place remedial legislation, that shorter period. But if, if, the, if the court says it's a year, then it seems to me it's a year. And Parliament can do what it likes, but it's still a year. But you're telling me no. Well, in my submission, it's, it's, it is uh, implicit in the, in, the, in the suspension that the suspension will come, into a, will, uh, it will come into effect. But once Parliament steps in, and enacts remedial legislation. In my submission, the suspension is then at an end because the purposes of the suspension are satisfied at that point. Parliament hasn't had an opportunity to respond at that so, point. So you, so, don't, you don't want, and we're obviously going to hear from, your, um, from Mr. Narwhal about this, but, but you presumably don't want us to imply from the judgment of Chief Justice McLaughlin in Bedford that this was a prospectively operative declaration but you want us to imply, presumably from her statement that 
Um, she's concerned that prostitution would be totally unregulated while Parliament grapples with the complex and sensitive problem, right? That's, that's what you're wanting us to imply. Um, so don't imply the temporal operation, but imply that, that, that it, it's meant to be preempted um, by subsequent legislation. And if I can just pick up on the, the, Justice Brown, the word you used, preempted. That's a court of appeal, use that word, it preempts the retroactive effect. The enactment of re remedial legislation preempts. It doesn't preempt. The declaration comes into effect right. at that point. But, it yes. but, so, but, but Justice Rose's point, okay, so instead of preempts, it amends it. It amends the order suspending the declaration. That's Justice Rose's concern, right? Um, that, that the court orders the suspension of the declaration for 12 months, says nothing about, about, about the effect of subsequent legislation. You're saying that, that the declaration is effectively amended because it is implicit in the granting of the suspension, it might even be implicit from paragraph 167 of Chief Justice McLaughlin's reasons, that new legislation um, ends the suspension and it takes immediate effect. And I'd go so far as to say, by so doing, you seem to have conceded what appears to me to be the linchpin of the uh, argument or, or the reasoning of the British Columbia Court of Appeal. And that's why I put the question to you. If, if, you, if, you want to, if you want to insist to us that the doctrinal basis of the BC Court of Appeal decision is sound, I'll accept your submission. Could I just interrupt here for a sec in line with that question, just to ask you this. It seems to me there's two purposes behind the order that this court made. One is to give Parliament an opportunity to reflect and come out with new legislation. And so we're not effectively saying you must take a year or that, you know, if you come out before that, um, you know, your order won't be, your new legislation will be invalid. One of, the sole, one of the main purposes of it is to give Parliament the time it needs, whether that be six months, eight months, or a year. So I'm kind of of the view that I don't think there is a problem coming out early, and I don't think there's a problem with it impacting on the suspended declaration. But the second part, and probably from the, uh, when I look at the AG Canada's position, and one within, with which with respect I agree, the second part is to try and protect people during this period who are vulnerable to people like your clients and who are going to get abused and controlled and and beaten up and everything else and extorted during that period. And that is a vital part of this legislation where the court is effectively saying that law will stay in force. That law, which has been found to be unconstitutional, will be extended for up to a year while Parliament does what it wants to do. But in the meantime, we are going to send out a message that we are protecting a vulnerable group of people in society. And here's the message, people like your clients. If you commit this crime during that period, you will be vulnerable to be 
charged and convicted criminally for doing it. Otherwise, and that's the deterrent effect, I would say, the deterrent effect of the suspension. And so the AG Canada says, you know, yes, the court didn't say it's prescriptive, but we can infer, it's implicit in an order like this, that the court intended it to be prescriptive so that it could protect the people that it was designed to protect. In terms of, um, in terms of what, I'll, what I'll do, uh, it, I'll, I'll hand it over to Mr. Narwhal because Justice, your, uh, Justice Moldaver, your, your question about the prospective nature goes to what Mr. Narwhal is going to speak about. And I'll hand it over to him in, the morning, in, a, in a moment. But I just wanted to, to finish off my point on the legal effect by, by saying that there is the purpose of the suspension in this case. And, and, I, and, and I disagree with uh, the, the Crown in this case, which says that there's no reason, if, if we're right, there's no reason you would ever impose a suspension. We have to we have to keep in mind the importance of legislative choice, and then so when this this suspension is at an end, when Parliament responds, because the purposes of the suspension have been met, it's going on. This the period of suspension is going on longer than necessary. That's why it ends when the constitute when the remedial legislation is enacted. So I'll turn it over to Mr. Narwhal um, to address the prospective nature of uh, uh, the, the the nature of the remedy imposed in Bedford. All right, thank you. Thank you. In my respectful submission, the remedy in Bedford did not operate outside of the Blackstonian paradigm. It did not deny retroactive effect, and the court did not impose a prospective remedy only. In my respectful submission, the jurisprudence and the academic commentary demonstrate that a prospective only remedy is first a drastic departure from the Blackstonian paradigm that must be rare and when rarely imposed, explicitly stated. And so to illustrate well, those me, points. Excuse me for a moment. This court in G, Justice Karakatsana speaking for the majority, made it very clear that these suspended declarations are to be only ordered in exceptional circumstances, exceptional cases, and, and if I understand the reasons correctly, the reason for the order in Bedford would clearly come within one of those exceptions, i.e. the protection of society and particularly the protection of a vulnerable group. So we start off with an exceptional order but from what I can understand, the defense here wants to say, but it really doesn't mean anything. Oh, I, uh, Justice Moldaver, I, I think, uh, at least from my respectful submission, we're dealing with layers of discretion. So the imposition of a suspended declaration is in itself exceptional. However, to say that the remedy of the court is perspective only is in my respectful submission the very apex of the discretion that's available because that is contrary to the uh, otherwise applicable Blackstonian paradigm. So the point I wish to make then is that when the court elects to make a perspective only declaration, in those circumstances there has to be uh, a consideration of that question.
question and also um, an, an explicit statement to that effect that this remedy, this order is meant to apply prospectively only. And to just to illustrate that, if I could just draw the court's attention, please, um, to the condensed book, the uh, appellant's joint condensed book, please. And specifically starting at uh, tab one. This is of course the Bedford uh, decision. And, uh, and I'd like to draw the court's attention, please, to the final page of that tab, which should uh, be paragraphs 166 to 169. All right. So in my respectful submission, in Bedford, on the question of remedy, the court considered whether a declaration of invalidity should be suspended, and if so, for how long. That's reflected at paragraph 166. Let's jump down then to 169. The opening sentence of that final paragraph says, the choice between suspending the declaration of invalidity and allowing it to take immediate effect is not an easy one. So between those two paragraphs, we have the court considering the question of the validity, uh, the, the suspension, and if so, for how long, which I say, yes, is an exceptional layer of uh, discretion. But if we move then Excuse to the me, question before you go of, on, I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. you just left out paragraph 168, which of course is the paragraph that the court found to be paramount and, and why it made the order. So maybe you want to look at 168. Well, I was going to get to 168, and so my point with respect to 168 is that there were other remedial techniques available to the court in Bedford. For instance, the Bedford court could have um, uh, issued an order uh, creating exemptions. It could have specifically indicated that, um, that there's a carve-out of the provisions to allow for certain prosecutions. And in my respectful submission, not doing so in the context of these passages reveals what I think was the court's application of the Blackstonian paradigm. It seems to me that if we'd done that, we would be interfering with Parliament's role and we would be somehow divining what the law should be or will be in circumstances where it's completely unnecessary, where we leave it to Parliament to make the call, and what we do is in the interim we say, beware out there, if you commit this crime, pending that, you're going to be prosecuted. Right, so, you know, going back to Mr. Uh, Pertsky's point, I mean, the, the appellant's position is that when the declaration of invalidity, we say when it came into effect, those laws were struck from the statute books. We say the parliament had an opportunity to act. It could have created a new set of legislation, giving it a transitional effect and capturing the conduct that would have been um, properly still criminalized within the holding of Bedford. And so turning then back to the question of the perspective versus the retroactive, um, if we turn to an example, and I think it's a critical example, of, the court, of this court imposing a prospective remedy, then in my submission, what we can derive from that is first of all, its rarity. 
and the reality that it must be explicitly stated. So if we turn to then uh, uh, tab two of the condensed book, please. This is the, um, the PEI uh, judge's case. An instance in which the court did impose a, um, a prospective remedy and said so explicitly. So if I could please draw your attention to paragraphs, uh, 17 through to 20, which are reflected on the, the final two pages of that tab. In my submission under the heading transitional transition period, within paragraph 17 and 18, the, in my submission, what the court says is that in order to prevent a disruption in the administration of justice, the court will, the court suspended the requirement of the creation of this uh, administrative type tribunal for one year, after which the quote, the judicial compensation requirement will apply prospectively. And you'll see that line reflected at the final Par, uh, at paragraph 18, the final line. All right. If you turn the page then, the court reflects on the significance of issuing a prospective only remedy at paragraph 20. At paragraph 20, the court says, I note that the prospectiveness of the judicial compensation requirement does not change the retroactivity of the declaration of invalidity made in this case. Then I say uh, in my respectful submission, there's a critical sentence then at the end of paragraph 20, where the court says, in rare cases in which this court makes a prospective ruling, it has always allowed the party bringing the case to take advantage of the finding of unconstitutionality. Mr. Narwhal, so can I ask you this? I'm sorry uh, to interrupt you, but I guess I think we all agree with you that it would be far, far better if, um, if the court were to be explicit in, in the remedy in exactly uh, outlined how it is to apply and the hope is that after G that, that will be the case but the reality is I think that for most of our cases it hasn't been always explicitly stated what um, how how specifically it's going to play out or um, you know it hasn't been the same kind of, uh, of uh, detail been given to the various choices that were made and so we have to look at the context we have to look at what was said to decide what was the intention of the court right, right. and so in uh, in my respectful submission um first of all and this goes back to some of the the questions that were posed uh, to my learned friend mr persky first of all i don't think we can imply turns in my respectful submission to the order made in bedford I don't accept that, um, that as the Attorney General of Canada holds, that we could add uh, more terms to the order. The point I wish to draw from the 
cases uh, from the PEI judges case is that the court was clear as to which aspects of the ruling would apply prospectively, characterizing prospective rulings as rare. And going back to a comment I made uh, earlier on in, in my submissions, when we deal with the question of prospective only rulings, that is in the context of remedy, I say the apex of discretion, which contains different considerations. And in the context of Bedford, the question of, of uh, perspective only didn't arise, I say quite obviously, because it wasn't the sort of case in which a perspective only uh, type of remedy, um, I would say is generally available. But what I'm going to do just to sort of uh, pick up on these two points that I've made in response to the question, uh, Justice Karakitsanis, uh, is I'd like to draw the court's attention, please, to the fourth tab of the um, condensed book. This is an extract from the concurring decision of Justice Bastarach in Hislop. And I'll draw your attention uh, now, and I may turn back to it later, to paragraph 161 of the decision, which is captured on the first page of the extract. Paragraph 161, it says, first, the question of whether to deny a retroactive remedy is different from deciding whether to grant a suspended declaration of invalidity. The same considerations do not apply to both. In my submission, that's a very, um, uh, important context to the question of the perspective only ruling, which I say different considerations apply, and that is a higher form, the apex of discretion for the court to uh, impose a perspective only ruling. And the reason why then, I say that in the Bedford ruling, the question of perspective only didn't arise, is because prospective only rulings are, as the court said, extremely rare and generally arise in specific types of context. So to, to, to make that point, I'd like to draw the court's attention, please, to tab three of the condensed book. This is a, um, this is a uh, article from Professor Leckie called The Harms of Remedial Discretion. Professor Leckie has a few passages within this uh, article which provide, I think, a helpful analysis to the question of retroactive effect versus prospective effect. And he puts it better than, than I ever could. So.
If you can hear us, Mr. Norwell, we lost you. So. Mark? Mr. Dujan-Chef, uh, unfortunately, Council Norwell has lost connection to the Zoom session. We are currently attempting to uh, contact him to regain his access. Thank you. Thank you. So what we will do, we'll take our uh, morning break, uh, 15 minutes. Thank you. The court, la cour. Thank you. You can be seated. So Mr. Narwhal, you, uh, you're back and you still have 15 minutes. Uh, thank you. I, I apologize to the court. I'm deeply embarrassed by that and quite mortified as that literally was my worst nightmare. Um, I've now switched, uh, switched spots with my, with my colleague and I'll pick up from where I was. I was about to take the, the court through what I say are some important uh, helpful passages from the, the uh, article of Professor Leckie. And specifically, I'd like to draw the court's attention, please, to um, page 598 being the second to last page of that tab. In the final uh, paragraph of that page, you'll see a sentence that begins, on a more critical reading, the choice between retrospective and prospective rulings liberates the courts from the constraints of retroactive effect. Where judgments apply retroactively, that effect limits courts to announcing new rules where they have considered the harms of changing the law, but conclude that the, law, that the new rule is so important and so clearly within the province of judicial creation and alteration as to justify its retroactive application to the case before the court and to subsequent cases. In contrast, courts with the discretion to make their rulings prospective are free to announce rules or to make decisions that, quote, would have been relatively unpredictable prior to their promulgation, unquote. That is, prospective rulings reduce the cost of creating new rights or of significantly altering the context of existing ones, since doing so does not disturb past legal offense. 
And this, this we're leading into then a few uh, sentences which I think are extremely important because they, they also relate to the PEI judges case that I took you uh, to earlier. It goes on. The cases involving institutional structures are especially relevant here. In the Canadian Judicial Compensation Appeal, the possibility of a prospective declaration liberated the Supreme Court to derive a specific administrative structure from the constitutional guarantee of an independent judiciary. Given its detail and lack of pedigree in authoritative sources, it would have been absurd to imply, as retrospectiveness would, that such a requirement had always been latent within judicial independence. In my respectful submission, going back to the submissions that I made earlier, that you know, the, the perspective only ruling is the apex of discretion. It must be rare and when imposed must be explicitly stated. The PEI judges case is an example of where that type of order was made in a very exceptional and rare context where the court was imposing a new administrative structure and in that context, the court indicated that, um, that, uh, that the order would be perspective only. And was also self-conscious about the reality that they were making a rare perspective order be, and specifically mentioned it in the passages. There are other contexts where a perspective order may, um, may be important or, or may be relevant or may speak to a context where the apex level of discretion must be uh, exercised. And that's, for example, in cases that involve benefit schemes with financial implications, where at the end of the day, retroactive effect may end up being um, in practicality in practical terms, amount to almost a compensatory uh, order for damages. And in those types of contexts in my submission, we reach the point of a consideration of apex discretion. Turning back to Bedford then, Bedford was not that context. Bedford was a case in which the court found overbreath in relation to the um, the parliamentary scheme that, that um, imposed restrictions on, on, um, on, uh, on sex work. In that context, the type of instances, the, the types of circumstances where prospective rulings may be applicable simply did not arise. And so I want to go back, though, to a point that Justice Moldaver made. And, um, and I think that the sentiment is reflected in some of the other questions that were posed by the court. In my respectful submission, the locus of the analysis of what the court ordered in Bedford and its implications should focus on section 52 sub one and giving section 52 sub one um, 
It's uh, the effect that the Constitution demands. In my respectful submission, the question of how best to prosecute these men or whether these men should be prosecuted and how are, are questions that are not directly relevant to the question of how do we give effect to Section 52 sub 1. And so the, the, the submission of the appellants is, and, and I'll it's sort of, before, before I sort of move into this train of thought, I'll note, I'll note that, you know, for instance, in G, in, um, in the dissenting reasons, there was a recognition that the, the, um, that, uh, the holding in Bedford had caused uh, some confusion, that there were different approaches across the provinces about how to deal with the Bedford remedy. Um, and it was a, in reference to an article um, in which Professor Lecky had made that observation. Well, as Mr. Pertsky indicated in his submissions, what we say the important point of all of this is that in Bedford, the court imposed a suspended declaration to allow Parliament to act. We say Parliament could have acted. They could have imposed a retroactive law that captured the criminal conduct that was not struck down in the context of Bedford, and to then clearly provide that message to the Crown that this is a mechanism and a route by which you know, prosecutions uh, can continue. And in my submission, that's an, an, a critical aspect to giving effect to Section 52. Can I ask because, you? Yes, oh. of course. Finish, finish your sentence. I'm sorry. I've lost my train now. Okay. Uh, I, I apologize for that. But I did want not to ask your, uh, your views on something that I, I'm not sure has been raised. So um, if we all accept that Parliament could pass retroactive legislation um, and could do so either explicitly or by necessary implication, is there an argument to be made that there's a necessary implication here? And I'm thinking of the uh, Roach and Chaudhry um, article that says, when you're looking at remedial legislation that's addressing the specific constitutional infirmity identified by the Supreme Court within the period of suspension, and the effect is to address specifically that, that there should be uh, a presumption of uh, retroactivity, or perhaps I wouldn't go that far, but ask you whether there's a necessary implication that Parliament intended that there be no gap in liability for exploitative uh, behavior. Right. And, and that's, um, um, that, that's something that uh, I had on my notes to, to actually refer to. Um, the question that the, the that Parliament's action is the indication that the exploitative conduct needs to be uh, regulated and prosecuted. And we say that it's Parliament's um, role to act in that context. But that's not quite what Justice Karakatsanis is asking you. She's asking you yeah. whether there should be a presumption <clears throat> that Parliament intended by legislating to legislate retroactively. 
verify. Oh, okay, maybe, I, maybe I've got it yeah, wrong. You, you, you went further. The okay. article suggests that perhaps there should be a presumption. My question is, can we yeah. say that by necessary implication in this specific context that Parliament intended it to be retroactive? In my, in my respectful submission, there can be no such uh, presumption okay. without a specific transitional um, uh, term within that new legislation. And may I go back to um, the finding in Bedford? I mean, it's interesting to me, and what implications does this have? The um, 212 was overbroad, right? And um, it would have been available, arguably, to the court in Bedford to read down the provision, and they chose not to do it. And they chose a remedy that invalidated the entire provision, as I understand it, and then suspended it. How does that impact on what you're putting forward and your argument about how Bedford needs to be read now? Well, I, I think that that's an extremely important aspect to the order that was made. The fact that the court did not carve out an exemption in my submission is signaling the, the fact that this was meant to be a, um, a retroactive order, as most orders are, unless they are explicitly said to be perspective only. And having done so, gave effect to 52 sub 1 by striking it down. And then when the declaration comes into effect, it's struck from the statute books. So when, at least in my reading of Bedford, it makes it clear um, that there are to be no prosecutions under these particular provisions. And handing the ball off to then, um, then uh, the parliament to craft new provisions that could apply retroactively without offending 11G, as long as they capture aspects of those um, offenses that were not uh, implicated by the, by the uh, specific constitutional concerns, and that it was Parliament's uh, duty to act, and they did not in my submission. And so the idea, the way, the way I at least look at it, is you know, to allow a prosecution of offenses that were struck down with an indictment laid years after the declaration of invalidity coming into effect ends up being an end run around, in my submission, what the Bedford ruling was. I don't want to be pedantic. It's a minor point, but you said that the uh, law would be struck from the uh, statute books. That simply is inaccurate. The only way in which something is struck from the statute books is if it's repealed by Parliament. It may be rendered in, invalid, but it still remains uh, uh, um, uh, a law, but it is a law which is of no effect. I mean, I'm not sure anything at all turns upon it, but I think there's a degree of clarity which needs to be maintained here. Right. Well, um, uh, Justice Rowe, my use of that phraseology uh, emerges from some of the cases. So, for example, if I could draw the court's attention to page seven of my uh, factum. That's the uh, Mazenapur factum. 
actually page six probably makes it uh, um, makes the point better and more succinctly and efficiently. In paragraph 15, I say that uh, in Ferguson, Chief Justice McLaughlin for a unanimous court also affirmed 51, 52 sub one operates independently of judicial decisions and that it acts to effectively remove an unconstitutional law from the statute books or in other words, render it void ab initio. So just turning over the page on page seven, there's an underlined portion of the extract from, from uh, Ferguson where the court says, to the extent that the law is unconstitutional, it is not merely inapplicable for the purposes of the case at hand, it is null and void and is effectively removed from the statute book. So I should have clarified my submissions to say that it's effectively removed from the statute books. Your point is it just amplifies the retroactive effect. Indeed. Yeah. Can you help me out with something though? I'm, I'm, I'm sort of struggling myself to figure out what sort of language the court could have used in Bedford. Uh, declared that the legislation is unconstitutional, what, to the extent that it captures people who really want to be nice and helpful to sex workers? I mean, you're asking us to effectively draft a provision that is so broad. I mean, it's, I don't know what it means myself, even as I say it. And it seems to me that that is why the court did not go the route you're suggesting it could have, because it's, a, it's an impossible task, it seems to me, unless we are going to somehow, you know, get into the legislation business. Right. And, you know, and that, that actually, at least the way I... Uh, see it kind of speaks to my point, Justice Moldaver. Uh, in my submission, the court had no choice but to strike it all down uh, in the context of, of Bedford because of the complexity and nuance of the operation of all of these uh, uh, provisions. And in my submission, now we should not be looking backwards to imply further terms to the Bedford order that simply were not imposed and not reflected in the terms of the uh, remedy. And but I maybe see that maybe I it now. wasn't, I mean, I didn't sit on Bedford, but um, right. I seem to recall the trial judge had a tailored order. Um, I don't have a recollection now uh, handy of the tailored order, but in my submission, when it, when it reached this court, the apex court, um, <clears throat> there was no such... Uh, Holding the apex of discretion. <laughs> And, you know, and the, the apex court applying the apex of discretion chose not um, to impose a prospective remedy or create exemptions. And I think that that's all very significant. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Ms. Vizioli. Yes, Chief Justice, Justices. A suspended declaration of invalidity is a judicially created remedy as are reading in, reading down, and severance. Section 52 sub 1 of the Constitution Act provides the authority for a declaration, but it does that implicitly because it states that the law is inconsistent with the provisions of that, sorry, that any law that is inconsistent with the provisions of the Constitution is to the extent of the inconsistency of no force or effect. And that modifier is important to the extent of the inconsistency. And it's something that the appellants effectively ignore in my submission. 
The development of these various judicial remedies all recognize that the Blackstonian or the declaratory approach, while still applicable in some cases, does not fully address the complexities of modern law and most particularly of modern constitutional law. They recognize that a law may only be bad in part, i.e. the extent of the inconsistency. Put more simply, we don't really live in a Blackstonian world. And just as Karakasanis, I would say that's what this court recognized in G, in taking the principled approach um, to suspended declarations of invalidity. So does it, I just want to be clear then about what that proposition means. Does it mean that the law survives to the extent that the court did not declare what portion of it was rendered the law unconstitutional? I'm trying to get your, your point. If the court had simply declared the law invalid and not given Parliament an opportunity to act, then the law would be void in its entirety. If, however, the court did what it did in Bedford, which is to suspend the declaration of invalidity to allow Parliament to act, then the law lives on. And Parliament did act. And so the law continues to have a life for the period of the suspension. The Blackstonian concept, which is that a law is invalid, an invalid law is deemed to be invalid as of the time it's passed. Do you, do you challenge that proposition? Because if you do, you're right. It changes the whole paradigm. Or do you not? I don't, I, I do and I don't, um, which is not much of an answer. Um, what I say is this, that the law is only of no force and effect to the extent of its inconsistency. So the Blackstonian approach is not entirely consistent with that notion if the court is striking an entire law where only part of it is bad. And, and Bedford, it kind of illustrates to me the awkwardness of the Blackstonian approach because the two other provisions that this court found unconstitutional in Bedford, the communicating and keeping a common body house provisions, had been found to be constitutional previously in the prostitution reference. And this court reconsidered that law because it was challenged on a different basis, but also because this court's jurisprudence on overbreadth arbitrariness and gross disproportionality had, had basically developed in the 20 years prior to the Bedford decision, i.e. after the prostitution reference. And so it sits awkwardly that a law that was deemed constitutional at one point in time has now evolved to be unconstitutional and the Blacks too, because it's overbroad, because it has effects that are not directly connected to its purpose, and the Blackstonian approach says the law never existed because it was invalid. That's, that's, that, that's the syllogism I want to work through with you. If it's not Blackstonian, what is the, when a law is declared invalid, forget about a period of, sus, of suspension, what is the effect, the legal effect of that declaration on the law? Is it invalid ab initio, or is it only invalid 
going forward if we don't have a Blackstonian framework? Well, I think it's open to the court to, to state that, um, absent any statement by the court, it, the Blackstonian paradigm would, would still operate. But again, the authority of the court rests in the extent of the inconsistency. Okay, so a suspension says it's not invalid until one year later, at which point it is deemed to be invalid. Is that right? Yes. And at the end of the year, is the invalidity as of the beginning of the law being passed, or is it from the end of the suspension, which means we have a different approach to declarations of invalidity when there is no period of suspension and when there is? Well, the purpose of the period of, sus of suspension is to allow Parliament to act. So if Parliament acts, it's the respondent's submission that the declaration never takes effect because Parliament acts prior to the expiry of the suspension. That's, if Parliament that's the, doesn't that's act, the magic. then that's, yes, it Madam, has the full retroactive effect. Yep. Yeah, okay. Uh, that's the magic that I don't understand, that by the enactment of legislation, the order of the court is varied. And... Uh, a, I don't understand how that operates. I, don't, I have no comprehension of the mechanism whereby that would operate. And second, does it not necessarily give rise to an uncertainty as to the efficacy of the suspension? Because you don't know whether there's going to be a law enacted during the period. But the, but the principal point is the first one. How can, what is the mechanism whereby the enactment of legislation by parliament or provincial legislature can vary the order of the court? Well, in my submission, it's not varying the order of the court. The provision that the court found unconstitutional in this case was repealed. In, for example, Carter, it was replaced. But, but the repealing of a statute is one thing. The repealing or the modification of a statute is one thing. The varying of the operation of the order of the court is something else. And you've said that by virtue of enactment or amendment, the order of the court is amended. Uh, and, and I don't understand that. It's just, as I said, magic. Actually, Carter's a very interesting example. So if, if during the period of suspension, I mean, the court grappled with whether exemptions could be given during the period of suspension, but if during the period of suspension, someone had been charged because the government acted and introduced some form of legislation during that period, are you saying that revives an invalid, or revives a statute uh, the court has said is invalid? Yes. Oh, and is that a, that is a principle that comes from what? It, it comes from the, the respective roles of the courts and the legislature. The, the court said this law has problems. It has constitutional defects. We're suspending the declaration of invalidity to allow parliament to act and parliament has acted. And then my, my 
and I, I agree that that creates then an issue um, to which I say the solution is a remedy, is an individual remedy for someone who would fall within what is now the exemption under the new law or what fell within the overbreadth um, in Carter or in Bedford, well, well, we don't, who we, fell we don't, within the constitutional infirmity of the original law. We don't even know why the court suspended in Carter. Unlike here, it gave no reasons, just suspended. Yes, and, and, and that, well, we, we have their reasons for why the provision was found to be constitutionally right, but, but, We but, don't but, have their reasons for, specifically for why um, they chose that particular remedy, but I think it, it's fairly clear that that was to allow Parliament to act. So we're going to imply reasons in Carter and we're going to imply from reasons in Bedford an intent that it be perspective. There's a whole lot of implications going on here. I just wonder, again, I suggest to Mr. Persky, I think we're making this up as we're going along. But can I suggest... Well, we, okay, go ahead, answer, and then I'll ask. I was going to say, well, we are, to an extent, I mean, the, this is in many ways uh, an issue of of first application by this court because the actual effect of suspending a declaration of invalidity of parliament then acting and enacting new legislation particularly in the criminal law context where we are talking about a substantive offense we're not talking about a procedural law that can be made retrospective or retroactive or civil law which can be uh, introduced retroactively, we're talking about a criminal, a substantive criminal offense. And so to an extent, we are making this up and we're in part making this up because this, this court and other courts have not always been clear about why they are choosing a particular remedy and the, the implications and extents of that remedy. And I think G, following G, that should change. Um, because the requirement of G is for the court to be more explicit in so, my submission. So can I take you, can I ask you my question then and take you back to maybe first principles here. Um, we have been talking about what's the effect of a declaration, whether it's prospective, retroactive, and a declaration of course is good as against the world. But my question to you is there, there, how, how do we factor in the difference between a declaration of invalidity and a judicial determination that a law is unconstitutional in the sense that a provincial court judge or any judge who finds that there is an unconstitutional law will not apply it. So whether or not this declaration is prospective or retrospective, there has still been a judicial determination that the law is unconstitutional in certain ways, and to the extent that a specific issue comes before a court, whether it be an appeal, whether it be 24-1, whatever basis, the court can apply the finding of unconstitutionality at the time it deals with it, whether or not this declaration is prospective or retrospective. And I guess I think that's an important distinction to bear in mind because the rights the rights flow from the finding of judicial, uh, of the judicial determination of unconstitutionality, but the effect 
of a declaration uh, may be is different. So if you can kind of talk about it in that context, I think that may be helpful. Well, I agree with that. Um, uh, that that that's you know, and the mechanism by which that operates is what's somewhat unclear because. As I said, this is the first time this has arisen in this context, but it, essentially that, that's what happens. The declaration doesn't come into effect, but the finding of unconstitutionality remains and can be applied by courts. It's the mechanism by which they apply that, and I, I would suggest that, that the remedial provisions of 24.1, whether they're in terms of a constitutional application or whether they're in terms of an abusive process application would apply in those circumstances and the finding of unconstitutionality would be would determine whether in that particular case the law was of no force and effect and i appreciate that there's a certain degree of uncertainty in that but there is no more uncertainty in that than in other any other application of the charter or in any application of the facts to the case at bar, whether the exceptions in the new provision apply or not, will often be a, a finding of fact for a trial judge. Can I, can I keep you in the charter for a second and refer you to another G, and that's 11G. Um, the right not to be found guilty on account of any act or omission unless at the time of the act or omission it constituted an, an offense under Canadian, et cetera. If you, yes. if, sorry, if we get rid of Blackstonian principles, then I agree we may be in new territory and things are open. But if we're not overturning that proposition, then something that was declared unconstitutional, ab initio, subject to a delay of that declaration ab initio for a few months, can nonetheless be uh, the subject of a charge. And I'm wondering if that doesn't run up against 11G and the right not to be charged with an, something that's not a valid offense. Well, I think 11G encompasses the really speaks to what is also the rule of law, which is a certainty to know what the offense was. And, and the offense is prescribed by how the, the offense provision itself and this, this court's ruling in G and the remedial legislation. So I, I don't think it runs up against 11G. I think what does run up against 11G is the appellant's contention that parliament could have made the new provision or could have made some provision retroactive. Because what Parliament did was it repealed the old provision and enacted an entirely new scheme. And the, while the conduct of the appellants was culpable both under the old scheme and the new scheme, that isn't necessarily the case for every person. Um, the, while the offenses are targeted at the same conduct, and while they are very similar, the elements of the offense are not identical. 212 um, was a charge of living wholly or in part on the veils of prostitution, and in the new offense, it's receiving a material benefit, financial or otherwise, with a list of exceptions. 
And um, the exceptions themselves, I, I don't think necessarily change the character of the offense, but the, the actual element of the offense, receiving a material benefit, is not identical to the old offense. And so I don't think it was open to Parliament to retroactively enact that provision and reach back in time. That has to come some other way. I, I, I'm going to put a proposition to you that uh, if I were defense counsel, I would make exactly the same point that you have made about the newly enacted offense. But if I were crown counsel, my reply would be, it's justified under section one, so that there is no gap in terms of uh, the sanctioning of this behavior, which has been recognized throughout the whole sequence as being blameworthy and properly subject to criminal sanction. Well, but these, this, this conduct, the, the conduct that the appellants were specifically found guilty of, and they were found guilty both, they were found guilty of basically a continuing offense, one that started under the old provision during the period of the suspension and continued well into the enactment of the new provision. They were charged under both provisions and uh, in effect, the trial judge made a finding of guilt on the old provision before quashing it and convicted them on the new provision. So their conduct never fell within the constitutional infirmity identified in Bradford and doesn't fall within any of the exceptions in the new provision. So, so in that context, I would say that you're right. But if, on the other hand, this was uh, an accused person who established that he fell within the constitutional infirmity or the exceptions in the new provision, which are designed to address that constitutional infirmity, then I would say that he has a valid argument, even as the Crown, because that's my role as the Crown. May I go back to uh, when you were talking about the act of legislating and, and its, its impact? Um, we're doing, we're thinking about that on the assumption that the legislation that is put in as the remedy is itself constitutional. And all of the premises of, of, of um, uh, Professor Hogg and that say, oh, this will be the effect if the intervening legislation or what Parliament produces in the second go around, like the material benefit provision, is constitutional. How do we factor in the possibility that, that the replacement legislation that's put in place in time is not itself constitutional? What does that do to your theories and analysis? Well, it I mean, it's open to challenge the new legislation on its constitutionality, but I don't think it has the effect of going back in time to change what occurred when it was enacted. There's a presumption of constitutionality, in essence, until a court finds that it's not constitutional. But I don't think then we can go back and invalidate every offense. But it would be up to that court who finds it unconstitutional to craft an appropriate remedy that addresses the situation broadly, understanding the impact of that legislation in the first place. Yeah, but in terms of how we just conceptualize this, a subsequent court says the material benefits sections 
are still overbroad, for example, all right? Um, what does that do to the uh, appellant's 212 charges here? In my submission, nothing unless the court is specific in its remedy for the breach of the new provision, uh, for the breach that the new provision constitutes. Every, I concede that every way that you look at this raises some potential inequity or problem. There is no simple, straightforward answer to this problem, even though on its face it seems very straightforward. What I will say is that if this court accepts the appellant's position, then there is no point in this court imposing a suspended declaration of invalidity for a criminal offense provision because it is completely unenforceable. If at the end of the expiration of the, of the suspension, the law was void ab initio and no one can be prosecuted. And what it except, creates- Except Parliament could legislate retroactively. Well, I say Parliament can't register can't legislate retroactively where we're talking about a criminal offense provision. Where do you get that authority from? 11G of the Charter. What about CINTA, the Crimes Against Humanity, which said well, that really 11G is about giving notice about the kind of conduct that will be criminal? Yes, um, and that was a, that was, in Finta, it was a criminal, it, it falls within that category of an offense, um, internationally known and recognized offense of 11G. But there is also a principle, there's 11G, um, which here, as I said, if, if Parliament's actions were simply to amend the provision to add exceptions, it may not offend 11G, but in Bedford, this court specifically found that the three provisions were unconstitutional and the remedy that this court imposed was based on the fact that these three provisions in the court's view were intertwined and that the balance of legislation or, or the balance between them was complex and delicate, that whether to regulate in this area was a decision for Parliament. Contrast that with, for example, Sharp, where this court wrote in or read in exceptions to the law, but regulating child pornography wasn't really a, a question for Parliament. It, it's a widely accepted social norm. Regulating prostitution is a highly debated and controversial aspect of Parliament's role, and it was a decision for Parliament to make. Can I ask why? Doesn't, of, doesn't all of this get remarkably simpler if it's possible properly to uh, interpret the uh, suspension as merely prospective? Thus, the existing law remains in full force and effect until the end of the period, and people can be prosecuted under it, uh, and so that you don't get into this difficulty and complication 
of uh, the, the law having been uh, void ab initio. In other words, a prospective declaration rather than a ret retroactive declaration. Well, that, that is AG Canada's position and, and it has, you know, a certain attractiveness to it. Um, the one potential problematic aspect of it is if Parliament doesn't act because, Justice Brown, you raised this earlier, if Parliament doesn't act, it's making a legislative choice and it's choosing not to regulate this activity anymore. So let's say, so at that point, should people still be prosecuted for this offense? But, but that was the point I was trying to raise earlier. Just because the declaration is prospective, it wouldn't stop someone from coming forward during the suspension, who, who, with respect to conduct during the suspension period and say, I've got a 24-1 argument. Right. I don't disagree with that. Um, that that's in fact what what effectively happened in Ackman. Okay, so that's but, the answer to your question. What if Parliament doesn't act? Well, I, I think it's it's yes, conceivably that that is an answer to it. Is that in the future um, or during the period of suspension, people? It, the constitutional exemption route or the abusive process route are answers. And those are the answers that the Attorney General of Canada has, has suggested to this court are possible routes by which to supervise that or to, to deal with that potential problem. Can I ask you a rule of law question that's, that's kind of on my mind? And it, it deals with the implications of charging someone with a law that the Supreme Court has said is unconstitutional. I mean, we know that a period of suspension gives the government a chance to correct it if they want. My question is the legitimacy of the public perception of the rule of law when in the face of a decision by the court to say that it is unconstitutional, the police nonetheless charge someone because it's in an intervening period before while we've given Parliament a chance to come up with good legislation, what that does to public confidence in the institutions um, that we rely on to act constitutionally. In other words, doesn't it have the appearance of kind of an end run around the Constitution? Well, that's the effect of a suspended declaration of invalidity and a reason why this court should only rarely impose uh, rarely I, use that remedy. I agree, but where we do, where we have, talking about charging someone under a law that we have said is not constitutional, and saying that it's okay because in the middle of that, a new law was passed, thereby bootstrapping the old invalid law into a valid one. I just, I well, just have I, concerns about how to explain that to the public. Right, but uh, I, I would counter that with how, how does the rule of law operate where the effect of declaring it void ab initio at the expiry of the suspension period means that effectively that someone who committed the offense on the first day of the suspension is more likely to be prosecuted than someone who committed the offense on the last day of the suspension. That someone who delayed their proceedings 
is less likely to be convicted than someone who didn't, that someone who obstructed justice is less likely to be convicted than someone who isn't, that someone who, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there for a second, but the rule of law doesn't, if the suspended declaration of invalidity expires at midnight and any prosecutions are therein void, meaning that anyone who is in the system can no longer be prosecuted, even though parliament has continued to regulate that activity, even though the, the conduct falls squarely within the purpose of the provision and the constitutionally sound portion of the provision, what does that say to society? What does it say about the point of having suspended the declaration of invalidity at all? What I'm, what I'm saying is that if that's ultimately the decision this court comes to, then a suspended declaration of invalidity is an ineffective remedy for a criminal offense. Just one final question. Do, do you accept that there's a difference between how we approach benefits legislation and retrospectivity and prospectivity and criminal law legislation, that there is a, a principal difference in the impact with respect to yes. both? Thank you. Yes, absolutely there's a difference. And I think that context is important. Um, it's important in considering the appellant's position that the that parliament could have acted retroactively. I think it's important for this court to consider in or any court to consider in crafting a remedy that you know it's not going to operate the same way in the civil context as it is in the criminal context and it's not even necessarily going to operate the same way in the criminal context where it's dealing with a procedural provision versus when it's dealing with a substantive offense and i see that's the end of my time yes thank you very much Ms. turley good morning chief justice justices these appeals provide the court with an opportunity to give guidance on the practical and legal effects of a suspended declaration of invalidity upon expiration, particularly with respect to criminal offenses. I will address the two main reasons why the approach advocated by the Attorney General of Canada should be preferred. First, it promotes rule of law principles of predictability and certainty, as well as consistency and fairness. The remedial effect, be it retroactive or prospective, is known when the court issues its order and is not contingent on whether and how Parliament legislates. Second, it is consistent with this, co with this court's purposive approach to constitutional remedies. Specifically, it gives meaning and effect to the motivation underlying the purpose of the suspension in the first place. G is the starting point for this, and as everyone has acknowledged, it confirms that suspended declarations are rare and exceptional. Indeed, when we look at the cases cited in paragraph 118 of G, there are only suspended declarations in two cases dealing with criminal offenses, so it is indeed a rare occasion. I'm going to turn to the first issue of promoting the rule of law. So the Attorney General's position promotes and respects certainty and predictability because the remedial effect is known once the court renders its order. It's not dependent or, 
are contingent on the legislature acting or failing to act. All actors within the criminal justice system, police, defense counsel, prosecutors, the judiciary, and citizens alike will know what the lay of the land is and the consequences of their actions. The appellant's approach is uncertain. While they say it's presumptively retroactive, they also say that Parliament can choose to fill any gap by legislating retroactively. So in that instance, the effect is not known until the suspension ends. Aside from the uncertainty and unpredictability that creates in and of itself, it is against what this court has said, the presumption against retroactive, substantive criminal legislation. In KRG, the court characterized it as a constitutional aversion. And for the reasons my friend for Attorney General of BC noted, is also contrary to 11G. The same flaw is inherent in the preemptive theory because there is uncertainty during the suspension period. Will it be retroactive? Because that'll be the case if Parliament doesn't act, but it'll be prospective if Parliament acts. Fairness and consistency is promoted as well in terms of both victims and offenders when we're talking about substantive criminal offenses. The appellant's presumptively retroactive approach effectively creates two different classes of offenders. The first is those who are still in the system and have successfully run out the suspension clock and those who are not yet in the system because they have successfully evaded detection. Those offenders, under the appellant's approach, evade liability. The second set of offenders are those who were dealt with during the life of the suspension and were held liable. On the other hand, a prospective remedial approach is based on time of commission of offense, governing. That in itself is a basic legal tenet, also grounded in rule of law principles. This court has made it clear that conduct is to be adjudged based on the law in force at the time of commission of the offense. Under our approach, all those who committed the offense before or during the suspension period will be treated equally, notwithstanding when they were charged and prosecuted. The approach also fairly treats victims and respects the time they may need to come forward. It is acknowledged that victims may take time, especially in cases such as sexual assault and human trafficking. I'm gonna turn now to the second reason why the Attorney General's Canada position should be preferred. It may, gives may, meaning and effect me, to the Turley. purpose. Excuse me, Ms. Turley, when yes. you're talking about those rights-based or policy-based uh, reasons why uh, on, the first, uh, on your first argument, aren't they similarly compelling for Parliament who does choose to act in terms of setting out what transitional provisions should in fact um, be uh, put into the legislation? Why are those just good ideas for a court thinking about a remedy? I agree, they're not only good ideas for a court, but we're dealing obviously here with trying to, in this particular case, 
uh, interpret um, what uh, the effect of the Bedford uh, decision was. And so, yes, I do agree. It is, uh, it is equally applicable when Parliament is choosing to legislate. But of course, as I just said, uh, the rule is against retrospective legislation for substantive criminal offences. Do you accept that Parliament could do so explicitly? Their legislation could have made this legislation explicitly retroactive? The, uh, I, with respect to the new legislation, it's our position that it is substantive criminal law. So in accordance with the teachings of this court, it would have offended uh, the rule of law and would have offended 11G. And so the better approach is that the court in issuing the declaration and suspending it was meaning for it to be prospective, which leads me to the second reason is the majority emphasized recently in the case of G that the interest motivating the suspension in the first place must not be undermined. And at paragraph 150 of the G decision, Justice Karakasanis wrote as follows. For example, when the effect of a declaration is suspended to protect public safety, an individual exemption would not be appropriate and just if it would endanger public safety. While that was with respect to whether individual exemption should be granted, in our submission, the same reasoning is equally applicable. Once a court determines that a rare and exceptional remedy of suspensions is required, in the rare and exceptional case of a criminal offense, its effect, its uh, reason for the suspension must be given meaning and effect. And Justice Brown, you asked, you know, what principle is there? And in our view, that is the principle. That where a suspension is ordered under a purposive approach to constitutional remedies, it must be given meaning and must not be un undermined. If we continue with the example of a threat to public safety, which both the majority and the dissents in G agreed is a valid and compelling reason to suspend declarations, then the purpose of protecting the public does not end with the expiry of the suspension period. Under the appellant's approach, those, as I said, who remain in the system who have evaded detection are able to escape liability. This approach will only incite individuals to run out the clock to bring motions, to bring unmeritorious appeals. And this fails the public, but more acutely, it fails the victims. Would you draw a distinction between when a person is charged rather than when the conduct occurred? No, in our submission, I, consistent with time of commission of offense for a prospective remedy, that, that is what should govern. Uh, so, because it may be, as in this case, that the offense was committed during the suspension period, but that forever, for whatever reason, it didn't come to light until, in this case, two years later. Perhaps the victim didn't come forward. But in, in order to give meaning to protection of the public, it means protecting them against all those who committed the still valid offense while it was on the books 
during the period. So we would have to Otherwise, conclude, sorry. I'm we, sorry. In criminal, that means that in criminal law, we would all, always have to conclude that a declaration of invalidity followed by a suspension means the declaration of, of invalidity simply is invalid, doesn't exist. And you can charge people either before or after on the possibility that you'll be missing some people who have committed crimes? Is that the proposition? It would depend on, again, the purpose. So if it, the purpose is protection of the public to ensure that there are not uh, offenders still out um, to keep the public safe, then yes, it would be uh, presumptively prospective with respect to offenses. But again, it's been a very rare remedy that's been used. I see my time is up. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Mr. Dunn. Thank you, Chief Justice. Justices, uh, the Attorney General of Ontario's position is that individuals who commit offenses during a suspended declaration of invalidity must be subject to prosecution. This result flows from the logic of the suspension itself, as explained by this court in G, and it's in fact the only way of ensuring that the principles described in G are given effect. I propose to draw the court to two uh, principles that animate this current concern from G. The first, that the public is entitled to the benefit of the legislation. And second, I say the structure of our constitutional order dictates this result. And, and finally, I propose to discuss the role that parliamentary action plays in this uh, analysis. Turning then to the, the first principle, which is that the public is entitled to the benefit of legislation. This, in my submission, amounts to a recognition of the important public protective purpose served by the criminal law. It has to be recalled that after G, a suspended declaration will only be ordered where there is evidence of a compelling public interest grounded in the Constitution that outweighs the harmful effects of delaying the declaration. That's the test after G. Now, in, in a criminal case, that constitutionally grounded interest will often be public safety uh, and, and the importance of the rule of law and will already have been weighed against the importance of protecting charter rights and the public entitlement to constitutionally compliant laws. So the balance between those competing constitutional principles recognized and described in G has already been struck. And, and in my submission, dealing briefly with the, the declaration and the suspension in this case, that's exactly uh, what happened in the Bedford, in the Bedford case itself. Uh, the court, in fact, didn't use the same language because it was before G, but at paragraphs 167 to 169, looks at, on the one hand, the immediate invalidity would leave prostitution totally unregulated and talks about that. In paragraph 168, on the other hand, leaving the prohibitions against body houses living on the avails in prostitution uh, would, leave, uh, would pose increased risk. And so it's that balancing exercise that's already happened in my submission. It is also true that after G, when the court is determining the appropriate remedy, it will already have considered that it's not appropriate to impose a more tailored remedy. G instructs that the court should determine the extent of the inconsistency and, and then whether one of the remedies of reading in or, or, or reading down uh, ought to be chosen and has decided that it should not. That's the situation in which we find ourselves here. And, and could I submission... just go to your, to your factum and, and, and your position? Would you say, though, in accordance with G, that had these appellants um, uh, been in the overbreadth margin 
i.e. if their activities were supportive, driving and the like, that they would have a 24-1 claim here, even though you say they should be prosecuted? I can't say after G that they could not, that we, we cannot foreclose 24-1 as a possibility, but I will say this, and, and it builds on something my friend just said uh, from AG Canada. G says a suspended declaration of invalidity should be rare. So it, it, it takes into account those interests. And in my submission, a 24-1 remedy would have to be rarer still. Uh, under G, for, for the criminal offense to be granted temporary validity through a suspension, uh, the, the enforcement of that offense must already have been found to serve, uh, to further, excuse me, a compelling and overriding public interest. I think it supports your position, frankly, that we can have, we've said you can have exemptions under 24-1, so we're not really going to worry if someone falls outside the kind of conduct, the exploitive type of conduct that we want to criminalize. This guards against people who are just trying to help street workers or whatever, from being con convicted. I, I don't, I, and it all goes into the mix, it seems to me, when we do a suspended declaration for a period of time. You have to consider that as well, which is precisely what G did. I, I agree with that, Justice Moldaver. The only thing I would add to that is the importance of keeping in mind that the court has rejected a more tailored remedy. So if it were possible to read in an exemption, so in the Bedford case, it was if it were possible to read in an exemption for accountants, and if that was in keeping with the principles from Schachter, then, then maybe that would have already happened. So it will not, it should not be easy to get a 24-1 remedy um, uh, exempting uh, uh, an individual from the operation of, the, uh, of the, the continued operation of the law during the period of the suspension. It should be rare, uh, it, you know, accepting that the suspension itself will be rare, it should be even more rare in my well, submission. It will probably be rare because if the police and the Crown realize that the person is helping, and not being exploitative, they won't be charged. But I know we can't leave the Constitution into the hands of the Crown. So in this case, the court has said, we can go beyond that. They didn't do it in Newer, but they said in this case, we can give individual exemptions. And, and I, don't, I obviously don't disagree with that after G. Um, I, I wanna take the court to what I say is in this context, an important aspect of the rule of law, which is the public entitlement to a positive order of laws. And of course, this isn't a, a new idea that the positive order of laws is, uh, is central to our constitutional democracy, but, but it's also not an abstract concept. In the very real sense, in the criminal law context, the criminal law serves to protect the, the safety and security of individuals, often the most vulnerable. So, so the law is not continued in force what G tells us, the law isn't continued in force to make it easier or more convenient for Parliament to, to craft a response or give, give that time. That's not the only reason. The reason is the court has granted a suspension because of a constitutionally grounded concern that is weighed against those other, the, the, the charter breach. And, and of course, I say this case, the, the Bedford case, not talking about the facts of this case, but Bedford, of course, provides a useful example of that sort of conduct. Um, uh, targeting pimps and the parasitic exploitative conduct in which they be uh, in, in which they engage, and that's Bedford at paragraph 137. So, in, in my submission, to paraphrase from Hislop, it's at cross purposes with the court's decision to grant the declaration of invalidity in the first place, to permit an accused person to avoid liability for conduct committed during the period of the suspension. Now, 
my second point, which is that the, the constitution has to be read as a whole, and there's really two aspects of this. Uh, one is the important difference between the criminal and non-criminal conduct uh, context, excuse me. Of course, the legislature is generally free to legislate retroactively, so long as it's done expressly. That's been recognized by this court. But second, 11G imposes an important constitutional limitation on this general authority. So, and to put it differently, again, in ordering the suspension, because we, where we find ourselves is a situation after the suspension has been ordered. The court has determined that there's an important interest in the continued operation of the law. And 11G imposes a significant restriction on that. You know, it's been suggested this morning that the parliament could retroactively impose criminal liability. Uh, I have some difficulty with that, um, uh, with that idea. My, my friend uh, suggested that if, if parliament reads the reasons in Bedford, it can then impose criminal liability on conduct that would not be caught by the, the declaration and do so retroactively. Uh, of course, when parliament enacts a new law, that's what it tries to do. It tries to enact a uh, law that complies with, with the judicial declaration in this case. What if parliament it, enacted a law and said, um, but the new law is not gonna take effect for three months? Can you charge somebody under the, assuming no court involvement at that point, can you charge someone with the old law while we're waiting for the new law to come into effect at Parliament's direction? Yes. Until the new law is in effect, the old law is in place. Okay, thanks. Um, and that, I think, brings me helpfully to the, the last point, which is what, what relevance is there uh, to legislative response? And again, this has been the subject of, of some discussion. Um, Courts have already developed rules that govern what happens when there's a, a change in the law. Um, Justice Rowe, you put a question to my friend about how the effect of, of Parliament, how can Parliament change the effect of the order? And, and I would put the principle this way. The parliamentary response, the parliamentary repeal doesn't change the order. But, but also the order doesn't prevent Parliament from repealing the law as it sees fit. And, and nor could it, of course. Parliament can repeal the law as, as, as it in its own discretion. So it's, it is you, not You'll get that, no argument from me on the propositions you've just put forward. <laughs> Thank you, Justice Rowe. Um, so, so in the context of a judicial declaration with no suspension, so one that takes immediate retroactive effect, we already have the in-the-system rule that holds that those individuals who are still before the courts benefit from the change in the law. But contrary to a purely Blackstonian view of the world, those who are not do not. We don't reach back for all time and invalidate settled convictions, recognize the importance of the values of certainty and finality, which is why in my submission it is important to treat Parliament's repeal of the law during this period of the suspension as an ordinary repeal law. So the law stands as it did up until the date of the repeal. People can be charged. And after that date, uh, the law is different. I see my time is up. So subject to any further questions, those are my submissions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Maître Aymond. Oui, bonjour, Monsieur le Juge. Council Emmon, yes, hello, Chief Justice, Justices. The Attorney General of Quebec finds or submits that, in fact, the um, accused could be found uh, or charged under S212J, according to Bedford. Our arguments today. Could you please speak a little bit more loudly because we can't really hear you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, I will. Yes, we agree with the conclusions of the Court of Appeal. 
in this case, but our arguments today would like to highlight some nuances with regard to what would have happened if the legislator had not acted before the end of the suspension period. We would also like to highlight that the rule of law requires that the rule be cl rules be clear and foreseeable. To summarize our position, we agree with the application of 112 j, j 212J here to the appellants here. The Parliament repealed the legislation within the year's time that was accorded to it, and there was no legislative void at any time when it comes to the criminalization of pimps. 11G of the Canadian Charter Charter prevents the federal legislator to provide a retroactive action, but it's not determinative because there is there are other options under 11J. 11G rather. When it comes to avoiding the retroactive application of a provision. What we see is that if the legislator fails to act, that does not mean that when the suspension period ends, there is an automatic retroactivity to the new legislation. It is therefore important for the law to be clear in order to preserve the rule of law, and that when there is the suspension of a declaration of invalidity, if there is a provision that is found invalid but is extended by the suspension, then it must be in effect throughout the whole period. Yes, please go ahead. Uh, we maybe have the same question. But if I understand correctly, if the legislator does not legislate during the suspension period, that does not mean necessarily that someone who committed an offense during that period and who then, but whose trial is after the suspension period could prevent the trial from taking place. Is that what you're saying? Answer, yes, that's right. Because for us, uh, during the transition period, uh, the provision is in effect. So when the offense is committed, well, it is an offense and it can be prosecuted. Even if afterwards the, uh, the provision no longer exists after the, the transition period. So yes, if the offense is committed, it can be prosecuted. Question, so uh, similarly, I understand that you're saying that even if the legislator fails to act, the, the provision is invalid during the suspension period. But I want to try to reconcile that with what you said earlier about the fact that you agree with the reasoning of the Court of Appeal with regard to the fact that the declaration of invalidity never entered into effect because the legislator acted. What that means in the opposite is that if the legislator does not act, then the declaration of invalidity does apply. Answer. Yes, the fact that the legislator acted before the transition period, what means that there's no legal void and that there's always been a criminalization of the activities of pimps. But what happens if there had been no action by the legislature before the end of the suspension period, well then if the same situation would not have applied because then anything that happened after the period of suspension would not be criminalized. 
Yes, but what we are interested in is what happens during the period of suspension, not afterwards. But for us, what is committed during the suspension, well, then the, the provision applies and the offences are prosecutable. Uh, but with regard to Judge Descote's um, question about the action of the legislature, well, if the legislature had not acted, well, then the provision would have become invalid for the future. So for anything that would have happened after uh, the uh, suspension of the declaration of invalidity. I've, I've answered your question, I hope. So you do not believe in retroactivity then, that's what you're saying. It cannot be retroactive. The declaration of invalidity cannot be retroactive. Well, if the court had stated that there should be some retroactive remedy, then yes. But if not, then that's right. That's what I am saying. Council Lemon. so did you examine what the Attorney General of Canada submitted here? And what do you say about that? So are you talking about the submission, which is more of an evaluation of the court's intent uh, when uh, deciding on a suspension to whether the decision is prospective or not? Well, the interpretation of Bedford to see whether there is a prospective nature there that would be compatible with G, this law, and would avoid complications arising out of a tailored exercise in a, an area that's as complex as prostitution. Yes, well, we agree with our position, but our position is this. Because there is suspension of the Declaration of Invalidity, well, the reason for that is to avoid the undesirable effects of an immediate retroactive decision. So the fact that there's a suspension means that uh, there should be prospective action if the legislator does not act. So the court's reasons in Bedford with regard to victims who should be able to uh, to um, bring forward their complaints when they're ready, well, that also argues in favor of prospective nature. So what I was saying, that at the time that the appellants, the act, the act for which they are accused took place, they are subject to a 212J of the Criminal Code. Because it really is the time at which the offenses were committed that matters here. Uh, the position of the appellants here would uh, go against the uh, the practice of the court to declare a suspension of a declaration of invalidity and because it would create a situation in which there was a judicial void and that would but what happens with people who are accused after the end of the suspension well, then it is a section 286 that applies. So what the appellants are saying is that, in fact, the opposite applies. The, position, the appellant's position would, in fact, encourage uh, accused to try to extend uh, the period uh, in which they are in the system in the hopes that that, that they would be able to wait out of the system. 
So the suspension with regard to Bedford, for example, well, that was a result or that was in the hopes that the result would be different a year down the line. So with regard to the Court of Appeals and what would happen if uh, the legislator does not act, well, there we have to, to act carefully or see what the nuances are. Because the validity of the actions depends on whether the legislator acts or not, and the legislator can only tell us what they intend at the end of uh, the suspension of invalidity, and that creates insecurity. And so that's the entire year of the suspension, and during that time, there is no way of knowing what will happen. Yes, the Court of Appeal of Colum British Columbia seems to have uh, relied on um, paragraph 92 of Hislop, and I agree that you perhaps do not agree particularly with paragraph 92 of Hislop, not the first part of it anyway, uh, because in Hislop, the court says, the court's order within the period of suspension, the court's declaration would apply retroactively. But Hislop did not deal specifically with the type of situation in which there's a legislator that does not legislate. So I think that the justices in Hislop did not necessarily want to force a legislator to act if the legislator did not wish to do so simply to avoid any retroactive effects of a decision. So in certain circumstances it can apply, but that I think that the Court of Appeal interpreted it too strictly. Thank you. Your time is up. Thank you. Mr. Persky. Yes, thank you. Just a, a brief reply. Um, the Crown acknowledges, the Crown respondent acknowledges that there are inequities uh, resulting in either situation um, and uncertainties. I don't agree. In our position is, is uh, clear. It's consistent with the Blackstonian principle. Now, importantly, the Crown, the respond, the Crown respondent AGBC had said, we don't live in a Blackstonian world. In my submission, that's wrong. The Blackstonian principle is of central importance in constitutional remedies. And in my submission, to adopt the Attorney General of Canada's, uh, Attorney General of British Columbia's approach would be to significantly dilute the Blackstonian principle, that is, that the retroactive effect of declarations of invalidity. Now, I, it may I, wonder, be I wonder, though, I mean, I wonder if you need to kind of rely on Blackstone. I, I, I don't know if it has anything to do with the temporal effect of a declaration in light of Hislop, right, where Justice Basterash makes the point that the reason legislation is void ab initio has nothing to do with Blackstone. It's Section 52. Why, why isn't that right? Well, it's the same. It's the, it's, as I understand Justice Basterash's reasons there, the Blackstonian approach, uh, declaratory approach, is rooted, uh, as some judges and commentators say, on the text itself of Section 52.1. So that, that, in my submission, yeah. it's a, it, it shows I'm, a I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering if kind of all this, you know, Blackstonian, I mean, you know, like I get all misty-eyed when I think about Blackstone, but... but uh, almost as much as dicey, but, but um, I mean, you have section 52 and you have Hislop and, well, and Hislop's, Hislop's I wonder if Blackstone's a, a distraction here, that's all. 
In my submission, it isn't because it shows that the effect is retro, the, the effect of the declaration is retroactive. Now, Parliament, then up to Parliament to decide. And, and Justice Brown, you raised the point of Hislop. That's exactly what was going on in Hislop. Right. The, the suspension of invalidity imposed in M&H. We're going to give Parliament six. We're going to give Parliament a period of time to respond with corrective legislation. They did that in a in the benefits case to say we're going to make it. We're not going to go all the way, but we're going to make it partially retroactive. And that was Parliament's choice. And it's the exact same effect between criminal and civil legislation. And they're not exceptions in terms of the legal effect. So it's up to Parliament to respond and step in. And so in my submission, the approach advocated by the appellants in this appeal, and it is what do, you, what, do you, what do you say to your friend's suggestion that, that, that this, this is all precluded by Section 11G, that the idea of- I don't, I, I say on a, per, on a purposive reading of the section, um, it, it, it prevents criminalizing new or different forms of conduct. And so Parliament on a retrospective basis to say, listen, we're going to make sure that we get um, the individuals who are, the, who are the, the proper target audience. But, and so, and that, in my submission, there's no 11G concern in those cases. And on a go forward basis, we're going to make a new, totally different law. Parliament's free to do so. And I say, just as in a benefits case, Parliament, Parliament's ability to do so speaks to the primacy of legislative choice. And so it perhaps may be in a future case, Parliament will address these matters in transitional provisions. But in the meantime, for the, in the circumstances of this case, the principles of uh, legislative choice and the Blackstonian principle ought not to be diluted. Even, so even if the elements of the offense are defined differently in the new it, 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 I'm, I'm somewhat surprised. If, if there are new elements of the offense, the, the general orientation of the offense might be the same. Wouldn't you be among the first to object to that? No, what I, what I would be objecting, and, and, and as we've cited the case of uh, one of the 11G uh, decisions of this court is in Fertney. In that case, the court said as long as it's, the, it's the protection of the impugned conduct, is, is the impugned conduct was that criminal? And of course, Parliament needs to be careful when it's legislating retroactively, mindful of the 11G concerns in this case. But that's exactly what happens in, in other types of cases. For example, when the court's imposing a tailored remedy, like in Sharp, the court narrowed the offense on a, on a, on a, reading, on a reading in, sent Mr. Sharp back to trial on that narrowed offense, i.e. different offense, and Mr. Sharp was tried convicted. And so the result is no different in my submission, if Parliament enacts the transitional provisions. Those are my points in reply. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So I'd like to thank Council for their submissions. The Court will take the case under advisement. Thank you.